This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Yes, yes! Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who at one point owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools and who aspire to one day once again own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. Thank you so much for joining us for another preseason episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski. With me, as always, the fantasy hockey robot himself, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another preseason. It's so exciting to like slowly inch from the summer to the off season, And then now it's the preseason. We're getting there. And by the way, if you haven't looked at your phone or device while listening to this podcast, take a look because we have a, a pretty new logo from Katya Polo on Twitter at Katya Polo. So, uh, I don't know, just look and admire. Yeah, we really appreciate the new look. Obviously, we went strong with our Breaking Bad-themed logo for a long time, but I guess that's kind of old news now. We could have made a better Call Saul logo. Anyway, okay, before we get into the madness for this episode, let's give you a hint of what we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about the rankings, default rankings. You all go into your draft rooms. You're all very aware of this process, and you see the default that they give you, and then you have to decide if you just want to auto-pick or just pick the next guy available according to the default rankings on Yahoo or ESPN or Fantrax or whatever. Or if you want to, you know, be smart and actually pick the person you think will be the next best. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're more likely to be the person who actually does some research and ranks your own players and comes up with your tiers and you're not going by the defaults. But a lot of your opponents, when you play fantasy hockey, are going to be just using the defaults as their guide. So it's up to us playing against these noobs to study the defaults and figure out where we're going to be able to optimize our strategies. Like we can tell, oh, if this player is really far back on the default ranking, maybe we don't have to draft him right now. Maybe we can wait. So that's our plan for today. We're going to go by the Yahoo rankings, just because Yahoo's really famous, not because we think Yahoo's the best or anything, but we're going to go by their rankings. And actually, you'll see as we go, maybe, I don't know how much work they put into these default rankings, but that's what they are. That's what your opponents are going to be using if you are drafting in Yahoo. So we're just going to go from the bottom to the top, or maybe I guess from the top to the bottom, and give you our thoughts on who's maybe ranked a little too low, a little too high. That's the plan. What do you think, Brian? That's such a fantastic plan. It's a Keeping Carlson tradition. We've done it for years. It's tried and true. And uh, the Yahoo rankings, let's just say before getting too deep into it, are a rich source of conversation <laughs> once more. I'll, I'll share the story I always do about having Mathieu Biron, like some defenseman on the Montreal Canadiens, not even on the Canadiens, but like in their system, 
being given the ranking that you think should have been meant for Martin Biron, the Buffalo Sabres goalie, for like two years running. Well, I guess they try. You know, I never saw it as being that bad until this year. Actually, these rankings, they're pretty wild. Okay, before we get into that, let's mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. It's the best fantasy hockey website out there. You go just to their site right now, and I'm seeing 20 fantasy hockey thoughts, off-season fantasy grades, ramblings, like just so much content. Then they have that guide, the world-famous, all-important Dauber Hockey guide that you need to purchase if you want to do well in your fantasy league. It's updating all throughout the preseason and into the regular season. So if you haven't checked it out, go to DauberHockey.com. It's a good site. And now, Brian, we still have one other piece of news to get to before we get into our Yahoo rankings analysis. And that is, as you may recall from last week, we mentioned that the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, the Kakupful, our deadline for signups was last Friday. So technically, we've closed off signups, except we actually have a little bit of room left. But also, since the signups were complete, I was able to see who signed up, who didn't. And, you know, obviously, if everyone came back, then we would have known at the end of last year who was going to be eligible for Tier 1, who's going to be eligible for Tier 2. But of course, now that I took a look, we realized some people didn't come back, which means some people get to get promoted. And in fact, there are five people that should be in Tier 3, winners of their divisions last year, and they were new to the league. They should have only been in Tier 3 this year, but one of them is going to get promoted to Tier 2. It's very exciting, Brian. We are going to do a live draw right now to see who of Bobby, Max, Jeff, Dustin, or Anthony is going to get that much coveted promotion to tier two to play in my tier. Now, if past experience is anything to go for, we had one live random draw on the show last year and a Jeff won it and then went on to win the whole thing. He's the ultimate cupful champ. I wonder if the Jeff luck will play a factor in this year's draw. Okay, so I've actually got a special guest coming to help do this draw. If you are here watching live at keepingcarlson.com slash live, like you can for all of our shows, you'd be able to see the lovely Dina, my wife. She's going to be here to do the draw any second. Here she is. So, all right, let me just twist this over. Dina, say hi to all the listeners. Hi. (laughs) Okay, we've got the Carlson hat, of course. Carlson on the front, 65 on the back. All the names inside. Dina, if you would, please. Okay. Let's see who the lucky winner is. Dustin! Dustin, you're coming to Tier 2, baby! Wow. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Dina. I just lost 50 bucks that I put on Jeff. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Before you go, Dina, any fantasy hockey advice you want to share to our listeners? Always keep Carlson if you can. Hey, I've been trying. It's hard. <laughs> Tough luck. Okay, bye. Thank you. Woo! So exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I mentioned, we actually filled 14 of the 15 divisions we're hoping to fill for this season. Because, as you recall, we're having one division in Tier 1, one, two in Tier 2, three in Tier 3, all the way down to five in Tier 5. We filled up to four in Tier 5, so we still have a few open spots, like 12 open spots. So if you're interested in playing in the couple this year, it's not too late. If you sign up to become a patron at keepingcarlson.com slash patron, then you could get an invite to the couple. So, you know, we'll go on without you. It's okay. We can go with four divisions in tier five. It's not the end of the world, but uh, we still have some openings. So check it out if you're interested. Maybe we'll mention it again at the end of the show. Brian, I want to get to our content now. 
I guess we've already set the table a little bit. We explained what we're going to do with these Yahoo rankings. We explained why Yahoo. And you know, if you're in a league that's not Yahoo, by the way, I think there's still going to be something in this episode for you. We're going to be talking about a lot of players, and probably a lot of these platforms have some guys ranked similarly. And if not, still, we're going to give you our thoughts on a bunch of players. Brian wrote like a book. I'm taking a look at all the notes he's taken to prepare for this show. So we've got a lot for you. Also, you might be asking yourself, how can you even rank players? Like, how does Yahoo have default rankings if like all leagues have different settings and different scoring categories? How can you compare a league that counts hits and a league that doesn't count hits? Well, Yahoo doesn't even announce like what they're for. Maybe they do and I didn't see it. But it looks to me like these rankings that they produce are for a league that counts hits. Hence, Boone Jenner being ahead of Koivu and Radulov and Eberle. So I'm going to assume for the rest of our conversation, Brian, I think that the Yahoo rankings are counting like goals, assists, shots, power play points, hits and blocks at least. And maybe they're also counting like plus minus or whatever, but we're not going to talk about that. That's a chump stat. But as you listen, obviously, if we're talking about a guy and we're talking about his hits and you don't count hits in your league, obviously, you have to downgrade him a bit. But I think that's it. Like, that's all the table setting I've got. Unless you've got anything, Brian, we could just get into it. No, the table has been set. Let's eat. Okay. So patron John Mark said when I posted that we're going to be doing this episode about the Yahoo rankings and I wrote that we're going to comment on which players we think are too high and too low. And he wrote, so all of them? And then he pointed out a bunch that he thinks are wrong, including Blake Wheeler at 40, Pasternak, like Anderson, Dubnik, Carlson, Skinner, Arvidsson. There's a lot of names. We're obviously not going to get to all of them. There's actually quite a few that I think could be ranked differently. But let's just start by saying that the goalies Damn, what have they done? There are 13 goalies in the top 25. We did a whole episode last week about goalies. So obviously we're not going to go too deep into our thoughts on all the different goalies. Except to say, Brian, can you think of any reason why you'd have so many goalies ranked so high? Like I've never been in a draft where two rounds in, half the starting goalies are taken. I wonder if if the Yahoo default settings, which these rankings are based upon, have a huge proportion of goalie categories, making up the head-to-head stats or roto stats or whatever you're drafting for, which this makes this a good opportunity for us to remind everyone to, to weight your goalies appropriately. If you're designing a fantasy league, goalies should not be more than a third of the categories. And even that is pretty heavy, like a quarter or even less is a good idea. They're very important in real life. We've had this discussion on the show before, but for the purposes of fantasy, too much can be determined by one player week in, week out, if you have too many stats that go towards the goalie side of things. Yeah, so if I'm drafting in a Yahoo League, honestly, like I'm going to let my opponents take all of these goalies early if they're going to go by default rankings. And I'm going to wait because there's actually some very decent goalies who you and I had in like our tiers three and like four the the latest that are very, very low. Like just in terms of goalie rankings, we've got Ben Bishop, Mike Smith, Scott Darling, Craig Anderson, and Antti Ranta going from the 19th goalie to the 24th goalie. So you could wait 18 other goalies if people are going by the default rankings and still get these decent starting goalies. Obviously, if you want to get a Holtby or a Carey Price, you're going to have to go early. If you want Cam Talbot in Yahoo, you're going to have to grab him like with a top five pick because he's ranked number four overall. But I still think there is some gold to be mined from some of these goalies. Like there's the ones I just said. Brian Elliott way down at the 29th ranked goalie for a starting goalie. Like sure, he had a bad start to last year, but he's actually pretty decent at the end for Calgary. And I think I wouldn't mind having him as like the second goalie on my team. Also, Markstrom, Varlamov, and Steve Mason are, are all like 37, 38, and 45. just way down. So many crazy goalies are ahead of him. Like Mike Hutchinson is the 36th goalie ranked, and then Steve Mason is 45th. I'm pretty sure that Mason's going to be getting more starts on the Winnipeg Jets than Hutchinson, who probably won't even make the team. I think that's pretty likely that Mason and Hellebuck are the ones who account for all 82 starts, assuming they're healthy. Hutchinson, of course, has no business 
being there. Like Hutchinson is not better than Mason or Hellebuck or really any backup candidate in the NHL this year. So yeah, forget about him. In your list of, of goalies that you rhymed off the Bishop Smith, Darling, Anderson, Ranta, you had Ranta at 24th. And uh, we've seen him buried a lot deeper on other platforms. I'm still nervous to see exactly how many wins the team in front of him can cobble together, but that seems like a fair group to lump him with. Of course, we did all our lumping in Smore Goldie's board last week. Uh, but Ranta, he does look capable of handling the amount of difficult rubber that he's still expected to face while maintaining at least an average save percentage. So you just hope Arizona wins enough games for him. You mentioned Markstrom is ranked behind Nielsen. I feel like that's an open competition at this point. Bit of a coin toss heading into camp. So like one over the other doesn't make sense either way. And then you also mentioned Varlamov way down there above Steve Mason inexplicably. Like I would still prefer Mason assuming that Mason is giving me at least league average save percentage and some wins every now and then. Varlamov I have is like the worst uncontested number one this year for you to own. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury is one of the others and whichever Vancouver goalie would be the other one if they do settle into a one-two situation. Though I know you disagree on the Marc-Andre Fleury bit. Okay, yeah. Well, anyway, I think that's enough about goalies. We talked the whole last episode, over two hours, about every goalie in the league. So hopefully you guys got your fill. So we're going to move on. Moving forward, I'm just going to generally be talking about people in terms of how they're ranked compared to other skaters. I'm not going to tell you, like, you know, Carlson is 18th overall, but the 11th skater. So we'll just talk about 11th, because obviously there's a million goalies ahead of all these people. So let's not let them bog us down. So Brian, okay, let's get into some skaters. I want to start with Eric Carlson. So he's the 11th skater ranked which to me seems like a low ranking. Like normally Eric Carlson is drafted in like the top five, maybe top 10 in leagues. But here we're talking 11th skater. That's not even including goalies. He is the second D behind Brent Burns, which does tend to be where he's been going in leagues, especially that count hits and blocks. So Eric Carlson dominated in blocks last year. He was second in the league and could have maybe even beat Chris Russell if he didn't get injured at the end of the year. Though Russell really did come on strong. Obviously, Russell was injured. Russell had more blocks per game overall. Anyways, then Brent Burns takes a lot of shots. But let's talk about Eric Carlson because he had surgery after playing through torn tendons in his left foot during the playoffs last year. We've been having a really fun chat on our patron-only Facebook group asking if there's any doctors around trying to determine how long he's going to be out because the Sens are being very quiet about it. They're being like, we don't know. He isn't ready to play yet. We don't know exactly when he'll be back. And it's like, how worried should we be? I feel like Eric Carlson is such a valuable guy in fantasy just because he gives you so many points from a defenseman spot on your team. And now with the blocks also, but I don't want to pick a guy as good as Eric Carlson is if he's not going to play. Of course not. But even if he just misses a little bit of time, that's not even a big deal. Like he still finishes ahead. Well, let me go into it. Like in a head-to-head league, whatever. Like, I'm cocky enough to think that even if I draft Carlson in a head-to-head and he misses a month, I still cobble together a lineup. I can still win my early matchups or lose, but Carlson being in my lineup for the rest of the season is still more valuable than having anyone else, like a a 50 or 55-point defenseman in his stead. If it's a roto or season-long point setup, then maybe you could be a little worried. Although, again, Carlson minus one month of production is still about as good as any defenseman not named Brent Burns. But Carlson does lose that no-doubter elite status as missed games pile up. So that actually leaves Burns up there alone. So more than decreasing Carlson's value, I think it actually ups Brent Burns' level a fair amount. And that actually leads into me expressing my astonishment at how Eric Carlson is ranked 11th overall. And I think that's crazy. I got a question. Uh, We did a Reddit, our hockey AMA 
earlier this week. You can go check it out if you want, reddit.com slash r slash hockey. And the question was, who should I pick second overall in a new keeper league, assuming that McDavid goes first? And my answers were either Matthews, if you want someone young who might not be the best option for this year, but should be the best long-term option after McDavid, Crosby, who should be the next best option in the immediate future at forward, or Eric Carlson. And Eric Carlson is just so far ahead of the defensive pack, and Burns only has a year or two of fully reliable elite production left. So then Carlson is going to be left alone ahead of the pack of scoring defensemen. So in one year, I could see prioritizing Burns a little more, especially with hits, especially if Carlson is going to miss a little time. But Carlson should be right up there with him, no matter what. Like, unless it turns into three or four months, then you're really in trouble. But I say you could probably handle five or six weeks and still reap the benefits of getting Carlson because it is a substantial drop to the next best group of defensemen after Carlson and Burns. Well, I mean, we'll get to Victor Hedman a little later on in the show. I mean, Hedman had more points than Carlson last year. So, but who knows if he's going to be able to do that again. Carlson's been doing it year in, year out. And like I said, Carlson missed some time due to injury. So maybe there are at least one or two defensemen who can challenge, but Carlson's like the for sure dependable guy. He even had like a down year last year with 71 points. He had 82 points the year before that. So yeah, I think now's a good opportunity. Also, if you're in a keeper league, Brian, maybe if Carlson's injured, we could finally try to trade for Carlson in our, in our league that we co-own a team in. Maybe his owner will finally be willing to trade with us so we could once again say that we own Eric Carlson in our keeper pools. That's a really good thought. If you don't have Carlson, if you're not keeping Carlson at the moment, this is your window. Send like the worst possible doctor's reports. We actually had in our patron group, Elon, we said, are there any doctors in the house? And we got like a few decent medical opinions and a pharmacist opinion about what exactly might be happening based on the available information, which isn't enough for like any fan, regardless of their knowledge, to surmise exactly how much time Eric Carlson's going to miss. However, uh, we did look at Scott Cullen's rankings and he projects for games played. He had Carlson still playing 75 this year when he set up his rankings, I don't know, sometime in the last week. So that's promising. Yeah, I mean, whatever. We can't predict it. No no one knows. You just have to kind of roll the dice, I guess. But anyway, yeah. So maybe this is what Yahoo got right. They have Carlson as the 11th skater, maybe because of his injury. That's where he should go in a one-year league. Maybe that's where he will go. But I would like the idea, like you said, in a head-to-head league, I'd even reach for him or be really happy to get him with like a second-round pick if I can, because once he comes back, he's going to be great. Okay, next uh, skater who surprised me, Joe Pavelski as the ninth skater and the third right wing overall ahead of guys like Sagan, Kucherov, Ben, Eichel, like Joe Pavelski. I mean, it seems too high for him, right? Like he had 68 points in 81 games last year, which is good, like 68 points. Sure, that's a really valuable player, but I don't know if I'd want him ahead of Sagan and, and Kucherov and Jamie Ben. But I mean, the year before, Pavelski did have 78 points, which maybe would put him in the conversation to be that high. So I guess my question to you is, why did Pavelski have that drop last year? Like, why did he go from 78 points to 68 points? Maybe is Yahoo just expecting him to bounce back to 78? And maybe then we could just talk about if we think that we concur with Yahoo's opinion that Pavelski just had a down year last year and he's going to get back to where he was a couple years ago. Yeah, no, I don't think he's going to get back up there. So perhaps he's not that high, but don't sleep on him as a guy who still has 70 point potential in his pocket. He's remained remarkably effective through his early 30s thus far. This is going to be his age 33 season. And that's reason to be ready 
for a bit of a drop in points. But the positive side is that over the last two years, he's actually held pretty steady. He had a noticeable drop in shot attempt rates in 2015-16, but he kept those constant last season, and he actually put more pucks on net per 60 minutes than he had at any point in the last five years on his way to 68 points in 81 games. And more to his credit, he survived what's been a shift in the Sharks' system to taking more point shots and creating less offense uh, laterally down low and instead going low to high. And so he's the one who's helping bang home rebounds and deflect point shots and adapting to that role pretty well. And he looks especially reliable when you look at him next to Joe Thornton, who we know came off a, a really just brutal season last year. And one of the reasons was because of this increasing tendency for low to high, which means you know they're moving the puck from below the goal line up to the point and the point men are taking the shots on net and that's supposed to create deflection opportunities and rebound opportunities. It's actually not the most effective tactic, but Pete DeBoer has decided, I guess, that it's the best tactic for the Sharks. And when you have Brent Burns on the ice, I guess it makes a lot of sense to have him being the cannon at the back. The odd thing is that it continued for every other defenseman who was on the ice, like Mark Edward Vlasic was taking greater percentage of his team shots than ever before. So was David Schlemko. By the way, I, I should credit a lot of this info came from an article by Tyler Dello over at The Athletic. But one of the, the summaries the, or the points of this article was that Joe Thornton has been less involved in an offense that works this way. Instead of creating, which is what he's known to do, right? He's amazing at setting up goals and piling up assists. He was retrieving pucks and just sending them back to the point instead of looking for plays to make and creating goals down low. That's not his forte. He's not a guy who should be chasing pucks and sending it to someone less skilled to shoot. Now, that's not the only problem with Joe Thorne. He had a huge regression in his on-ice shooting percentage, and that made his numbers look like a more dramatic decline from the year before than I really think they deserve to be. Everyone says, well, he was old too, so that's a part of it. Yeah, that's still a factor. I think he can bounce back if allowed to get back into the offensive mix. But his ability to do that is shown to be a little more tentative than Joe Pavelski's. Yeah. Okay. So by the way, Yahoo definitely did knock Joe Thornton way down after that down year. He's down at 171 overall in their rankings, 145th skater and 34th center. The 33rd center is Adam Henrique. And I still think I would want Joe Thornton over Adam Henrique for what it's worth. By the way, if you want to follow along at home, we posted a Google sheet with these rankings from Yahoo. So keepingcarlson.com slash Yahoo will take you to our Google sheet. We've got nicely laid out the overall ranking and also every player's position ranking so that you could really see exactly where the player slots in compared to his peers. Okay, so that is Pavelski and Thornton. Brian, the next guy I want to talk to you about is Steven Stamkos, way down as the 26th skater overall. Again, I'm not even going to mention where these players are overall, overall, because like I said, there's a million goalies ahead of these guys. But 26th skater for Steven Stamkos. This is a guy who was an over point per game player for so many years, like an elite guy who would be drafted in the first round, even in the top five of a lot of leagues. Now he's behind Jeff Carter, who's the eighth center. Steven Stamkos is the ninth center. And to me, it's like uh, Steven Stamkos should be higher, I think. Like, obviously, a lot of people are nervous about him. But according to a news item that came out on September 5th, Stamkos is ready for training camp. And his ailment is night and day better than it was at the end of last year. So it seems like they're saying his injury is gone. I see you're scoffing at this a little bit. Well, yeah, this is the time when everybody is reporting the camp in the best shape of their life with the best spirits. Oh, my gosh. Can you believe the transformation that's happened over the summer? Optimism is abound 
Uh, like there was the Ovechkin showing up slimmer to camp report. Like these are the things, like these are the morsels we have. So of course we're going to devour them and try and apply them to what we know and what we think. But very rarely do they really have any true bearing on what happens through the season. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's different when we're talking about a guy who's coming back from injury, right? Like he wasn't in a knee brace, right? Like, day. He was skating, which is a lot better than he was at the end of last year. So that is kind of night and day. But yeah, so Samco's last year, by the way, he did play 17 games before getting injured. And he had 20 points in those 17 games. So he was putting up, or at least starting to put up another elite season. Before that, he was only like a 70-point guy. And I say only in quotes. Obviously, 70 points is great. But yeah, only a 70-point guy for the previous two seasons. But before that, he was like well over a point per game for like many, many years before. So I guess the question becomes, who is the real Steven Stamkos now at this point after coming back from his injury? I feel like if he gets around 70 points, then maybe the ninth center is, I still think, even a little bit too low, but more reasonable. But if he could get back closer to 80, like he was you know, on pace for last year for what it's worth in 17 games, then it seems like you could get a real steal if Stamkos falls to like the fourth round of your draft and I wonder Brian if I'd be crazy to say I think he has like a 90 point ceiling I feel like at this point in the draft he's like one of the only guys left according to this Yahoo list who has such a high ceiling like if things go well Steven Stamkos is an elite guy I wonder though maybe is the whole idea that Kucherov has now broken out Stamkos hasn't really played since Kucherov became such an elite elite player as he is now like he's a guy being ranked in the top five in a lot of platforms so i wonder how that affects your opinion of steven stamkos not a whole lot but let's go back for a second and just see how he ranks as a center he's ranked as the ninth best center 26 skater that's inexcusable so let's just look center uh you know you look at the options this year there's actually a lot like there are a lot of good center possibilities right at the top of course you have mcdavid crosby malkin matthews if you miss out on those guys there's probably about 11 other centermen who have a pretty good shot at 70 points. And Samkos is not only in that group, but he's also in the top half of that remaining group. So I think he's definitely a top 10 center this year, but you're right, Elon, in saying that Yahoo is totally wrong and weird about having Jeff Carter up above him. Jeff Carter has scored more than 70 points exactly once in his career. And that was back in 2008, 2009, when he was with Philadelphia at 84 points that year. He hasn't ever scored more than 66 points since then. So why have him above Stamkos? Don't know. Anyway, getting back to Stamkos. The moment, like you talk about these two guys, right? Someone who's had this amazing point per game upside and more. And then someone who has sort of underwhelmed other times. And the reason he went from one extreme to the other, or maybe not extreme, but he went from being a point per game guy to a sub point per game guy exactly when he no longer had Marty St. Louis as a line mate anymore. And not only did he not have Marty St. Louis on his wing, but Marty St. Louis was replaced by Ryan Callahan. And then the other guys he was playing with most often were Alex Kalorn and Valtteri Philpula. That's a pretty big drop in talent of your line mates. And it's visible in Sam Coase's on-ice shooting percentage. That line just finished a lot less often than it did when St. Louis was a part of it. Uh, but Sam Coase still managed 70-point seasons more or less with Killorn and Callahan, which is a feat that's pretty impressive in and of itself. Now, he did have better line mates last year in the brief action that he did see. But the interesting thing that jumps out of Stamkos's numbers is that he set a career high in shot attempts per 60 minutes. Again, this is a small sample, 17 games. But like we're talking, this jump in shot attempts was a pretty significant jump from the last few years, during which he'd already increased his shot attempts, which actually makes sense because 
he was really the only forward on the ice with Killorn and Callahan that was a significant threat to score. So maybe he keeps throwing more shots on net. I don't think it was a total coincidence that he did have a notably elevated shot attempt total last year. I feel like that's something he was trying to do and succeeded at. And then, you know, he's probably going to have better line mates again. Callahan is not touching the top six this year. Shouldn't be. Valtteri Filipula is gone. Maybe Kaloran's still there, but maybe he gets joined by Braden Point, and that would be exciting. I'm with you, Elon, that 70 points is a floor if he doesn't have ideal line mates. He can still get there. That's still something great to say about him. And I'll also agree with you on his ceiling being around 90. It's definitely possible if he gets the right line mates and is able to contribute to the power play in a way that, you know, if he gets to be really involved in it, uh, though I think it's more likely he finishes below 80 than above it is where I will try and lean to to get a little more specific about where he's at. Definitely not the ninth best skater. I would definitely take him over Jeff Carter. Not to throw anything at Jeff Carter. Like he's been a really solid 60 plus point guy. He had a lot of goals last year. He was really valuable to a lot of teams, especially because they were able to get him so late in the draft. Now I think he's being overvalued by Yahoo. Yeah. Jeff Carter always underrated in fantasy. I bet even with like this weird ranking in Yahoo, if you're not auto drafting, he's probably going to drop lower than he should. He's a guy that I've been able to get, I feel like for free as a 60, 65 point guy, when you're at the point where you're drafting 55, 60 point forwards, just because he's on LA and just because nobody thinks of him as the number one center. But while Kopitar is shutting down top lines and seeing sometimes the opposition's toughest matchups, Jeff Carter is working his magic on quote unquote, the second line. Yeah, so these Yahoo rankings are weird because sometimes I think, oh, it must be that Stamkos is lower because he, you know, got injured last year. He didn't play a lot. So maybe they're just looking at the last season as how they come up with it. But then I see that Mark Giordano is like higher than Victor Hedman, which to me makes no sense. So sticking on Tampa Bay, let's talk about Hedman now, who, like I'm saying, is behind Giordano, behind Shea Weber. So Hedman's the 28th skater and the 5th defenseman. I think Hedman... Like in most of my mock drafts that I've been doing over the past little while, Hedman's always been the third defenseman. It's been Carlson or Burns and then Victor Hedman. Here, Weber and Giordano land ahead of him. So, okay, maybe in a hits and blocks league, you're going to get more from Weber and Giordano in those peripheral categories. But Victor Hedman, he had 72 points last year, which was insane. The big question is if he can do it again. We've had a lot of discussions about him on the Facebook group. A lot of people thinking that this is not something that will be repeatable and maybe he benefited from being on the top power play and this whole idea of when Stamkos is back, maybe Anton Strahlman takes some time there, which I think would be pretty weird. Anyways, yeah, do you think that Hedman is like the obvious choice for third defenseman after Carlson and Burns for next year? I'm talking like in a one-year league. If we're just talking about who's going to be the third most viable defenseman in fantasy next year, is it Hedman for sure? Or is it worth having this conversation of whether Weber, Giordano, or maybe some other guys like Roman Yosi and Dustin Bufflin? Like there's a lot of defensemen we can mention. I always kind of thought it was a lock that Hedman would be third, but clearly Yahoo doesn't think so. No, Hedman is definitely third, except in the mock drafts I've been a part of so far, everyone has been hesitant to be the one to grab Hedman. No one wants to be the one that's banking on 70 points again. But just because you grab him doesn't mean that's what you're banking on. And actually, while we mentioned their names, Weber and Giordano also seem to be available in rounds later than ever before. Giordano, I understand. Weber, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with. I think he's still got some good value. But anyway, Hedman is the only defenseman other than Brent Burns and Eric Carlson this year who's got an upside for more than 60 points. And we've talked before about how Hedman's production this year is going to hinge on whether the power play usage remains similar to while Stamkos was out last year and what worked with him 
or if it reverts back to how it was with a healthy Stamkos and how it had been for the two or three years prior where Hedman played a lesser role. Regardless, I think Hedman's going to have more opportunity this year to produce, whether they just roll out that power play part-time or on offense, they let him unleash a little more. And, you know, you might not feel comfortable drafting him because of all these ifs and buts, but he still has a real jump on any of the defensemen that are ranked behind him. And that's why I think he's the clear number three, because I said he has upside of 60 points or more. My next group of defensemen behind him, no one has upside above 55 points. And so having him over them still gives you a worthwhile advantage, in my opinion, assuming most of the remaining forwards on the board are reasonably equal. The only other guy I'd consider taking ahead of Hedman and like people are equally reluctant to do this too, is Chris Letang. But that's only like for the most hardened poolies out there who are ready to take on that level of injury risk and just be nervous every single time he takes a shift, which might not be worth it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's some defensemen who have upside for 60 points. Like if we're talking to ceiling, hashtag Timo Rensky has the upside, I think. I, know. I, think, that's a, I think that's a little friendly. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Okay. Like we're talking right. realistically. Like, sure, Zach Wierenski or Kevin Shattenkirk, like, they can have a magical season. The power play can go bananas. All, all the percentages can smile in their favor. I'm just saying all things going reasonably steady and expected. Hedman is the only other one aside from Burns and Carlson, and that gives you an advantage if you take him over any of the guys that come next. Yeah, okay, no, I agree with you. And by the way, did you say that you thought Giordano was, like, ranked too low? I feel like he's way too high, in my opinion. He's the 27th skater. Maybe I misheard you. You misheard me. We agree. Okay. Just making sure. So you mentioned Chris Letang. Let's talk about his teammate, another guy ranked, like, disturbingly too low, like, insanely low. This is, I think, the craziest ranking on the board so far. Evgeny Malkin is ranked 82nd and the 60th skater. And the 18th center, like, is this a joke? At this point, I want to know, and I really hope we don't get in trouble from Yahoo here. Like, (laughs) you know, like, I'm just actually curious, like, who comes up with this? Like, sure, he gets injured a lot, but even last year with Malkin only playing 62 games, he still got 72 points, which ranked him among the top 10 centers. So it's like, even if you account for the injury, and like you said, just about Eric Carlson, if you are in a head-to-head league, when he's injured, you have to put him in your IR and pick up a center who will give you only like 50-point pace in instead but while he's there he's like a game breaker above point per game guy every single year i have no idea how they could justify putting malkin so low like compare that to logan couture who had 52 points last year and he's the 11th center ryan kessler had 58 points in 82 games and he is ahead of Evgeny malkin of course kessler helps with hits but still i mean come on and also kessler if you're worried about injuries Kessler is recovering from hip surgery and likely won't be back until at least November. So anyways, I don't mean to rant. I just want to get your opinion on Evgeny Malkin. Like, where would you take him? Because I know there's that injury risk. And we talked about Carlson. Maybe he's worth dropping back a little bit in a one-year league draft because of this injury. And Malkin, he's not injured now, but most likely he's going to miss some time. So if it's like your pick near the end of the first round and he's still available, do you grab him? Or do you wait and hope that you can maybe get him in round two and you're okay with missing him if you can't? Well, I got to read the room and see how many centers are being taken and what the draft trends are at the moment. I'm not that scared of him, though. I I already talked about my top 10 centermen, and he was definitely one of them. He was one of the top four that I mentioned. So, I mean, if you have a shot at him at the end of the first round, I feel like you I feel like you will. Like you'll have him and Stamkos probably on the table Uh, if he's available to you in the second round or third round. Absolutely. 18th ranked center 
inexcusable. He's arguably top five anything, let alone in the 80s. You know, I wonder if he's as offended by this snub as the top 100 NHL players ever. That's two very important lists on which Evgeny Malkin was underrated in the last calendar year. You know, even if Malkin plays 65 games and misses 17, I think he's still going to score enough points to be amongst the top 15 centermen, maybe even the top 10. So he's a great potential bargain for anyone in the league where everyone knows his injury history and is turned off by it and is like, no, I'm not touching it. Or they don't really know it, but they're like, oh, man, I thought Malkin was good. Yahoo must know something about him. Yahoo doesn't know anything about him. He needs to be drafted. Definitely round three at the latest. You are smiling. No, you are laughing if you get him in round three, round two even, end of round one, also appropriate. Yeah, well, you mentioned that top 100 NHLers list where Malkin was snubbed and everyone thought, how is Jonathan Taves there? Not Malkin, Jonathan Taves ranked as the 14th center on Yahoo. Malkin, like I said, down at 18th center. So Yahoo agrees with the top 100 list. Maybe that's how they come up with their ranking. I think that's what happened here. I think that's exactly what, what did, yeah, I forgot that Taves was on there and Malkin wasn't, which just is even more annoying. I'm rattled. I'm shaken. (laughs) Jonathan Taves, though, I've been seeing being kind of like underrated at this point in fantasy. He's still good for 60 points, but we're not going to talk about Taves today. Brian, what I want to talk about now is our good friends over at SeatGeek, who have been so kind as to sponsor this episode of Keeping Carlson. Let's talk about SeatGeek for a bit. You know how frustrating and complicated it can be to buy tickets to your concerts and sporting events, but guess what? There is a simpler and better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events, and with SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. You know, SeatGeek, they save you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. They also rank tickets not only by price, but by value. So you can see, is this actually a good deal for me, considering where I'm going to sit for the price? It's pretty great. And plus, Brian, if you are looking at getting tickets to those hard-to-find opening day tickets for your favorite team, but you think it's like a little bit too expensive even on SeatGeek, we've got a special promotion just for you. They sure do. If you... Listen to Keeping Carlson, and you have never bought seats on SeatGeek before. You've never had the SeatGeek experience. You should, and an incentive to do that is you will save twenty U.S. dollars off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you need to do is enter the promo code Keeping, and SeatGeek—they don't even have to send you a check these days. It's all electronic. Yeah, man. Computers these days, they could do everything. They could take twenty dollars off your purchases after <laughs> you use these awesome apps to buy tickets. There you go. Be a geek. Buy a seat, check out SeatGeek, and you can see all of these players that we're talking about in this ranking and how wrong Yahoo was. Some some are right. We're only going to point out the ones that are wrong. So I I shouldn't say that, but let's go now to a whole bunch of D who I can't believe are so far back in the ranking. So this is, I think, a really good opportunity for you as a drafter to school everyone else that you're playing against. People already, I feel like, undervalue D because if you're looking at just total points, obviously forwards generally are going to get more points than D. Like a 50-point defenseman is awesome and a 50-point forward is like barely fantasy relevant in most formats. But Yahoo definitely made it clear because there's guys like Razzis Ristolainen as the 65th skater, Wierenski 66th, Petrangelo 71st, Keith 74th, 
Krug, 79th skater. And these are also like really far down for defensemen. Like Ristolainen, where I started this list, is the 12th D, Wawrenski, 13th, Petrangelo, 14th. I don't know. I think these are all some really good defensemen, especially for someone like Ristolainen. If your league counts shots, you have to consider if it counts plus minus, maybe you want to take it away. But in power play points, Zach Wawrenski, we've talked about. I'm higher on him than you. It seems like Petrangelo. I love Petrangelo, especially if you could get him as the 71st skater, just because he's now the top power play defenseman on St. Louis. Finally, the job is his. Although I guess a lot of people think Pareko could steal the job. Anyway, we could get to all these players, but I want to just in general say that it seems to me incorrect to go with some of the forwards taken ahead of these defensemen. Like I'm seeing guys like Matt Zuccarello, TJ Oshie, Connor Sheary, Jacob Silverberg, all decent guys to own, but I would definitely take an elite top power play defenseman. Like one of those guys I just said, like Tori Krug with all those shots and the points, power play points. Come on. You got to have Tori Krug over Matt Zuccarello. Like, let me just explain really quickly about value over replacement. Like you can't just think about comparing the two players because you're forced in most leagues to fill all of your defensemen spots. So if you don't take an elite defenseman, when you have the chance, you're going to have to fill those spots with lower value guys if you don't grab this 55 point defenseman and you wait a couple rounds you might only be left with like a 35 point defenseman while if you know miss your chance at matt zuccarello who's a really solid 55 60 point guy i'm sure there's going to be another like 50 to 55 point guy available in the worst case at his position at right wing so it really doesn't make any sense to wait on these rare top power play defensemen in exchange for a 55 60 point forward in my opinion no, you're absolutely right. If you can get an edge, like this is another reason why it's okay to draft Victor Hedman like a little earlier than you might want to as a third defenseman because the difference between him and the next group of defensemen is probably bigger than whatever forward you're going to choose at that moment and the forward after that guy. So uh, value over good rant. It's a very important. And actually there are some guides out there that do take this into account. I know Dom's projections at Twitter, Dom Lucician is how I'm going to, like, I, I picture it being like Curtis Lecician, and I can say that. Uh, anyway, I'll go back to the defenseman that you mentioned, Elon. First off, Yahoo has Petrangelo ahead of Keith and Krug. And Elon, even if we disagree on how much time Petrangelo spends in the role of the Power Play 1 quarterback this year, do you agree that Keith and Krug should be above him? No, I think Pitrangelo should be above at least Duncan Keith, especially if your league counts hits and blocks and shots. Pitrangelo was so good at multi-cat. He had like 50 points last year, even though he didn't have that top power play role until the end of the season. So I feel like 50 points, he's always been valuable in fantasy and now it just skyrockets to be higher. I feel like he's going to really surprise you this year, Brian. Like Duncan Keith doesn't give you that many shots and he doesn't give you that many blocks. So I think for him, it's easy. Even if Keith gets five more points, I still want Petrangelo for the peripherals. And then Tori Krug, yeah, Tori Krug takes a lot of shots, but Petrangelo is going to beat him and hit some blocks and take sometimes 200 shots himself. So I don't think it's that big of a difference. I think Petrangelo is good for 50 points. Here I was going to, to great lengths to frame that question in a way to avoid having to listen to you try to pronounce Petrangelo. And then you, you laid it out about eight or nine times for me. Do you remember? I don't think you do. His nickname was Petro Canada for a little while, back when he was like playing defense for Team Canada in like junior tournaments. I feel like that could be a really... Anyway. So Brian, last year, Petrangelo had 48 points in 80 games, okay? Back in 2014-15, he had 46 points in 81 games. The year before that, he had 51 points in 81 games. This was as not the top power play defenseman. And in these years, he all had above 180 shots and 158 blocks last year. I guess he's not really a hits guy, but he got you in the blocks, the shots, upwards of 50 points in three of the last four seasons as not a top power play guy. Now he is a top power play guy. Like, how high do you see 
Tory Krug and Duncan Keith, like you just said before that you don't see any defensemen aside from Hedman and Burns and Carlson approaching 60. So even if you think these other guys are like, what, 55 and Pitt Ranchel is 50, is that such a huge difference? I think there is a difference. And what you're saying seems predicated. Like our disagreement is on how long he's going to stay in that first unit quarterback role. And like, if he doesn't, Elon, like if he's still just on the second unit, yeah, he puts up great numbers for his second unit guy. He's kind of like Brent Seabrook there except uh well i don't know if his peripherals are better i don't have them in front of me but if he doesn't spend like let's say he gets usurped by pareko you would still prefer him to krug and keith no but like that's a big if right like last year the st louis blues made the playoffs i assume they were trying to win and they decided their best chance of winning was to have petrangelo as the top power play defenseman all through the playoffs so obviously there's a chance that Pareko will take the job this year, but I don't think it's like a given like you seem to be snickering about and laughing about in the chat room. So you're avoiding the question. I mean, I can tell you that maybe I'm saying that maybe he won't be because there's a guy named Colton Pareko who might have a chance at camp to earn the job, whereas midseason having the job just changed from Shattenkirk to Petrangelo, who's done it before, maybe seemed like uh, the most even keel thing to do. Pareko is also your older so I, I, I think we're definitely going to disagree about this. So let's just, uh, we're going to agree to disagree. And uh, you still, you still want to disagree further. Go ahead. No, I just want to say, obviously, the point of this podcast is to try to predict the future as best we can. If during, tra- like, hopefully your draft is a little bit later and you get to watch some training camp and we're going to get a sense of how they're using Petrangelo and Colton Pareko. So, you know, obviously we'll have to update. For now, I'm assuming Petrangelo is on the top power play and I see him as a 50 point guy. If he's not on the top power play, though, back to your question, like 45 point guy. So still valuable with those peripherals. It depends on what your league counts. Whatever. It's kind of silly to be discussing like Petrangelo, Keith, and Tory Krug. Like, I would take Tory Krug ahead of them, but I think that I want Alex soon afterwards. All right, good. So I guess we're agreed then. Uh, the other defenseman that was mentioned, let's go all the way back. Ristolainen seems right where he is. I don't, like, a lot of people are talking about his defensive acumen. And there's, like, huge debates about whether he's actually a legit top-pairing guy or just an imposter on a top-pairing. But uh, in the words of the immortal Rock, It doesn't matter how he plays defensively. That has little to no impact on his production outlook. And hey, if he can be a defensive disaster and still put up 50 points, essentially be a lock for it, imagine what Ristolainen can do if he improves that aspect of his game. There's also like zero competition in Buffalo for offensive defenseman roles. So that's why he is, uh, he's very good where he is. And yeah, don't, don't let being on Buffalo or being poor defensively distract you from being one of the more reliable multi-cap producers out there. Yeah, well, I'd actually even say that Ristolainen is is too low. I guess like 12th defenseman, maybe that's fine, because I'm looking at the guys ahead of him. Maybe Drew Doughty, I'd probably have Ristolainen ahead of Doughty, but okay, maybe right. And also Jacob Truba, I think, is too high being above Ristolainen. But yeah, mainly though, what I was saying is all of these defensemen being behind all of those forwards, I think we both agree that we would have this whole group ahead of these like Matt Zuccarello and Jacob Silverberg, you know, so we agree on that. Right, Brian. And by the way, another defenseman who you already mentioned, who's very low, but we get to him now as we do our trip down the list of Yahoo rankings, Chris Letang at 129 overall and 24th defenseman crazy, like pick him. And if he's injured, fine, but he's going to get you a lot of points while he's playing. Yeah. At some point you need to be ready to take that risk and, the time to take that risk gets later and later every year, which makes it that much more appealing every year. So if he drops to be like, 
if everyone in your league already has one defenseman and Chris Letang is still out there, that's definitely a time where you can go for it. If not even sooner, Elon, of the first 12 defensemen picked, let's say a league has 12 owners in it, do you think that Latang deserves to be one of the first 12 picked despite his injury concerns? Well, news just came out today that he's at training camp and he's healthy. So we'll see how long <laughs> that lasts. I posted this on our Facebook group and someone responded, don't blink, which I thought was really funny. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say just because of the injury risk. Like this isn't Evgeny Malkin missing like 15 games. This is Chris Letang potentially missing the second half of the season. He's done it already a couple years now in a row. So I'm I'm concerned about him. I think you can go either way. Like I think while he plays, you want to have him. If you are confident in your other players that you draft and you're okay with potentially having to put Chris Letang on your IR, I think it's worth it to take the risk. I actually did a fan tracks cash league last week and I took the risk and drafted Chris Letang. And I'm pretty happy to have him on my roster and I'm happy that he's healthy and I hope he'll be on my roster for as long as he can. In this league, there's a bunch of bench spots and it's a weekly league. So I have to decide for every week which players to play. So worst case, Letang is out. I put in one of my other good defensemen that I drafted, but I'm hoping most of the weeks I'll be able to put in Chris Letang. And I also hope that he won't get injured on like a Tuesday and then be screwed for that week. Okay, Brian, and I mentioned a bunch of forwards. One of them that maybe sticks out is TJ Oshie. I was saying that I wouldn't take Oshie ahead of those guys. But if you look at Oshie's numbers last year, he did have a great season, right? 56 points in 68 games, which is a 68-point pace. But we've already talked about on the show. Maybe we could repeat for new listeners why you don't expect him to repeat those amazing numbers. And I'd be curious to know how far down would you knock him? Because he's still going to be probably on the top line and top power play in Washington playing with Alex Ovechkin and company. Yeah, so last year, the, the reason why you don't want to believe in what happened last year in draft according to that, you know, thinking, oh, it was his second year in Washington, he adjusted, he was a part of the system. He also led all regular skaters in the NHL in shooting percentage with a crazy 23% success rate. He scored on nearly a quarter of his shots. That's more than 10% above his career average, which is what we can expect it to regress to. This year, as you know, Elon and regular listener of Keeping Carlson, high and low shooting percentages, they are not sustainable. Only a very small amount of NHLers, like you can count them on one hand, small amount of NHLers can reliably post a shooting percentage that is several points above the league average, which is uh, somewhere around eight or nine percent. One of them, by the way, is Alex Tange, which you'd also know if you're a regular listener of Keeping Carlson. Anyway, another reason to disbelieve in Oshie's year last year is his goals four per 60 rate was just about double his previous high mark from the past six seasons. And that actually, you know, that could have made his success even remotely believable if his shooting rates hadn't actually declined at the same time. He posted the second lowest even strength shots per 60 mark of his career and like some people who who want you to believe in TJ Oshie still, they're saying, yeah, you know, he's seeing a ton of power play time. He's in a greater role. He's getting more power play shots. And he has better even strength line mates than he ever had in St. Louis. And that's all true. But TJ Oshie, even with that, still managed like not even 60 points. He's not a 30 goal scorer unless he significantly ups his even strength shot rates to account for the expected regression in shooting percentage. And bear in mind that, again, his shot rates last year were the second worst of his career. So he actually needs to improve that. Like he needs to up that and make it better while his shooting percentage is expected to fall way down. So you punch all that in and it amounts to someone that you're likely going to want to watch get drafted a couple rounds sooner than I'd suggest you pick him yourself. I'd be drafting him around 50 to 55 point guys. I don't imagine he's going to like continue climbing towards 60. 
yeah, I think that's reasonable. I'm happy to let other people reach for him. And then maybe I could get a guy like Ryan O'Reilly, who I want to talk about next, who seems pretty low to me at 137 overall and the 30th center. Last year, yeah, it was a bit disappointing. He had 55 points in 72 games, which is a 63-point pace. Not well, not horrible, but like not amazing. 63-point pace isn't bad. But the year before, he actually had 60 points in 71 games for a 69-point pace. So pretty much a 70-point guy. That's what Ryan O'Reilly was when he first got to Buffalo. The problem with him is, again, we're talking about a lot of these players who were worried if they can stay healthy. But, you know, the previous two seasons before these past two, O'Reilly played full seasons. And I don't see why, if he can somehow get healthy again, I don't see why he can't be a threat for 70 points like he was on pace for a couple years ago, especially being on the top power play with a more seasoned Jack Eichel. And, you know, Rasmus Ristolainen, who's hopefully going to get better. Uh, We already talked about him, but like, I don't see why he should become worse offensively, especially on the power play. So I really like Ryan O'Reilly as a sneaky sleeper guy, like 30th ranked center. I would have him like you know, closer to like 15th to 20th. And I think there is upside for that 70 point mark, which is hard to find once you're this low in the draft. Speaking of that Buffalo top power play, by the way, I also think Kyle Ocposo seems pretty low over at 145th overall. Yeah, so for O'Reilly, I think it might be a bit of a leap to get him up to 70 points, but 60 points certainly seems like an attainable mark for him, even if there aren't a whole lot of sources out there that are willing to make that leap. Even I think getting 60 points or having the upside or or probability that he has of getting there, that's enough to make him a top 20 center rather than a top 30 center, which is what Yahoo has him at. And I feel like the same translates to all of the Sabres top line, top power play forwards, not named Eichel, which I guess is just O'Reilly and Ocposo. Maybe Reinhardt could be in for a nice improvement this season if he keeps progressing. Uh, But Ocposo is included in that group is someone who seems to be discounted or forgotten, certainly ranks lower in a lot of guides and platforms than I would have expected. And so I've actually seen him low enough that I'm wondering if I'm like, if I need to bring my own expectations down, because I'm expecting 55, 60, hopefully more where most have him topping out around 55. So that's a, that's a little Brian against the world action happening this season. Hey, well, no, I agree with you. That's what I said. I think O'Reilly and Ocposo are both guys I'd love to get a little higher. I'm hoping to see. We still haven't seen elite Jack Eichel play a full season. You know, he had his rookie year where he was decent. Then last year, after he came back from his injury, he was basically a point-per-game guy. We talked about him a couple episodes ago as someone who was, like, I think top three or something in the league in points in the second half of the year. Like, he was amazing. And O'Reilly and Ocposo are good players that are going to be there right along with him, at least on that top power play. So I like their chances. And, yeah, Sam Reinhart, a lot further down, you might be able to get him in the last round of your draft. He is, you know, a guy who was ranked really high. I think it was like third overall. So he has the pedigree and he could be on the top line and the top power play with Jack Eichel. So don't forget about Sam Reinhardt. I know I spoke high on him last year and it didn't really pan out, but he wasn't horrible, first of all. And Eichel got injured. So can't count it. We'll see what happens this year. So Brian, continuing our way down the list. I was talking about Ryan O'Reilly at 137. Let's go down to 142 where I see Nino Niederreiter who seems to have slipped through the cracks, falling all the way down there. He's listed right around guys like James Neal and Charlie Coyle and Patrick Eves. But I see Niederreiter as as a tier above, but maybe I'm wrong. Like He only just had his career year last year. He had 57 points last year, which was great, and 120 hits. So I'm assuming, again, that this is a list for leagues that count hits. If Maybe if it didn't, then maybe Niederreiter would be closer to the right place. But like, was that career high of 57 points last year? Was that unsustainable? Or is he being underrated? I guess it's one of the two. Like, I feel like everyone is talking about Victor Arvidsson, and rightfully so. He's actually the 14th left winger listed versus Niederreiter as 34th. So a huge 
difference in where Yahoo was seeing these guys. But are they really actually that difference? Like Arvidsson put up 61 points and took a lot more shots, but Niederreiter made up for those shots with all of those hits and Niederreiter had 57 points instead of 61. So actually their overall point totals weren't that different. And again, just like Niederreiter, Arvidsson hadn't really done much before that amazing 61 point year last year. So I'd say if you're in a hits league, I don't see why you wouldn't just let someone else take Arvidsson and then you could wait like a couple rounds and then grab Niederreiter there. But of course, I really want to get your thoughts on what Niederreiter did last year and if it was sustainable, if he can do it again. Yeah, so you mentioned he's around Coyle and Neil and Eves. I think he's definitely ahead of the first two. Like, don't be shy about drafting him ahead of them. Eves is a, is an interesting one. I mean, I've seen articles where it's like, oh, he's definitely going to regress. He's never done this before. But he never had that kind of ice time before. So if he gets that ice time again and gets that roll again, yeah, maybe he's a little old to, you know, get that off again. But his numbers looked reasonably sustainable for someone finally getting the sort of minutes that he's been chasing his whole career after being slotted in into like a bottom six role the entire time before it. Anyway, getting back to Nita Ryder and how many points he can get and whether you should wait on him and not draft Arvidsson. I'm not sure. I agree with you, Elon. Let's look at where Nita Ryder is, is slotted into the lineup. You've got Michael Russo over at The Athletic saying that Niederreiter stall Parisi looks like the second line heading into camp. Now, that's not a bad place to be for Niederreiter, but I would still much rather have Arvidsson on the likely Nashville first line. I don't think Nino is going to get to 60 points either this year, and I do think Arvidsson has a pretty good shot at it. One thing Arvidsson had, and hopefully has going for him still, was an uncontested role on the uncontested top line and top power play unit. Like in Nashville, there wasn't a top nine like there was in Minnesota. The top six was like, yeah, there's a top six, but it was that top line of Johansson, Forsberg, Arvidsson that was doing damage night in, night out. Niederreiter is not on a line that resembles that sort of role at all. And the team as a whole doesn't have the whole setup. Like, I don't know that anyone other than their very top scorers can be considered a lock for 60 points or even a good chance of getting 60 points. And I don't think Nita Ryder is going to be one of their top, say, two scorers next year. He was helped to 57 points last season by a jump in on-ice shooting percentage. He also had a smaller jump in his personal shooting percentage and an IPP that I'm not sure he's going to be able to maintain. He certainly did help himself in addition to getting some friendly percentages, he fired more shot attempts and shots on goal than he ever has before. But even with that, he needed those favorable percentages to wind his way towards 60 points. So I'm with you that his hits definitely add extra value as like a 50, 55 point forward, but I'm not ready to go further than that. I'm not saying it's impossible. You know, he did just turn 25 on Friday. Happy birthday, Nino Niederreiter. Happy birthday. So perhaps there's room for him to still grow uh, but if I'm drafting him in any comparable way to Arvidsson, it's like an Arvidsson light. Yeah, okay, I see that. Maybe it was a little silly for me to compare the two. I guess I've just been seeing a lot of people talking about Arvidsson as a keeper now in their league, you know, and in not even too many keepers, you know, like a keep five or keep six, and they're keeping Arvidsson. And I feel like sometimes I see comparable people on the rosters that I'd rather have over Arvidsson than I've been saying, whatever. So if you don't keep Arvidsson, someone takes him, you can still get like Nino Niederreiter, who's close by. I don't know why I latched on him, but I do think it's interesting that he's so far down in Yahoo. Don't forget about Nino, I like his career progression and I like where he's going. And obviously, especially if your league counts hits. Okay, so we keep going down the list. We already talked about a bunch of defensemen, but we're still going to hit a few more that I just can't believe fall so far. We get to 159th overall in the Yahoo list. And there's Oliver Ekman Larson as the 31st defenseman. What? 
Ekman, like, yeah, he didn't have a great year last year, but we've already made all the excuses. Like, we've already talked about him so much on the show. We don't really need to get into it all again. Like, yeah, he had a down year last year, but he had that hand injury, which caused him to take fewer shots. Normally, he's really great for shots. And now, going into this season, we're seeing a lot of great young players in Arizona that we're excited about. Also, they've added Derek Stepan, who should probably help that top power play and help their offense overall. So I feel like Oliver ekman Larson, if you get him that late, that is insane. I'd be, I'd love to have him as the second defenseman on my team. And even if I got some good forwards, I wouldn't even mind having him maybe as the top defenseman on my team. Like, I think he could get back to 50 points, maybe even 55. Like, just a couple seasons ago, he was putting up a 55-point pace. So maybe that would be hard to do again, but not impossible if he just did it recently. No, it's definitely not impossible. And we've put a lot of stock into this report that emerged at the end of last season that he had a hand injury And that's the reason why he had that massive drop in shots on goal and shot attempts at both even strength and on the power play. We talked about this in episode 140. By the way, there's a lot of good stuff. That's also where the Oshi conversation was originally had. So if you want to, if you've enjoyed that part of the show, go back episode number 140. And yeah, Eggman Larson has been a guy who's made a career out of crazy shot rates. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here and assume that that drop in shot rates was directly related to this hand injury that he so weirdly played through and was asked to play through and was permitted to play through all season long. Why would you do that, Arizona? Anyway, the thing to watch going into this year, just to feel confident that Ekman Larson is going to start taking shots again. Uh, Last year, the Coyotes were suddenly taking a lot fewer shots from along the blue line. And I'm hoping that was just to accommodate Ekman Larson's hand situation. If this was a systemic shift by Arizona that's going to last into this year, then that could be trouble for Ekman Larson's shot numbers getting back up there again. But that's not the theory I'm buying into. And so I'm hoping for that bounce back. And if you want to go a step further, Oliver Ekman Larson, he's produced on some pretty weak Arizona teams in the past. And the one that the Coyotes are going to ice this year is undoubtedly full of more potential than we've seen in a while there. So it's more reason to believe in OEL again being a great scorer. Our caveat going into last season, like this time last year, was not to expect Ekman Larson to be a 55-point guy again. He had just come off a crazy season where he had 21 goals, 34 assists, 96 penalty minutes somehow, 27 power play points. If you're going to estimate where he's going to be at this year, that's not what I'd use. I'd use the two years prior to that where he's more of a 45-point guy but where he had a combined 463 shots. So that's what you're hoping for. You're hoping for about at least 220 shots and 40 plus points, hopefully 45 with a lot of power play involvement and uncharacteristically high goal totals for a defenseman. Man, Brian, you really got conservative there at the end, saying like 40-point guy, maybe 45. Like in that case, he definitely ranked where he should be if you're (laughs) saying that. I feel like he's more like 45-point floor with upside for more. Yeah, I think 45-point floor, like, that's definitely, that's reasonable. I'm not totally sure, like, if you look at the past, like, in his career, he's only passed 45 points once, and that was in that 55-point season, which is why we were cautioning last year, like, don't get taken away with this offensive potential. There are reasons why his 55 points in 75 games weren't totally sustainable and why we expected him to come down back to about 45 I'll, I'll just say that about 45 plus or minus one. <laughs> plus or minus one. I also think I'm excited to see what happens now that they actually have Derek Stepan there, a really decent 60 point top line, top power play centerman compared to Martin Hansel, who had that job there for a long time. 
Yeah, if you wanted to be pessimistic about Eggman Larson this year, you know, like I was saying that there's talent around him, which could lead to more offense while he's on the ice. The flip side of that is that maybe they don't need to rely on him so much to run that offense and get point shots on net. Maybe they're going to be able to work a little more successfully down low. And that would be a reason for his shot totals not to quite get back up where they are. But I'm still, again, saying 45 points, 220 shots. That's what I'm hoping for. All right, so we continue down the list. Let me rush through a couple really crazy ones. Marion Hosa's there at 162, which makes me wonder if Yahoo is even trying or did they have someone proofread this list? Hosa's not going to play next year, so I think that might be a little high. Then we have Kevin (laughs) Shattenkirk at 173, 34th defenseman, a guy who's probably a pretty sure thing for 50 points or like at least 45 as the top power play defenseman on the Rangers, probably one of the best power play defensemen in the league. We've got guys like Provorov and Fowler ahead of him. I would definitely take Shattenkirk ahead of those guys. I think it's kind of getting silly. And then we get to another defenseman, Justin Falk, who's a 37th D, 184 overall. I think he's someone interesting to talk about. He's continually disappointed us. We were really into Justin Falk early in his career because he was the top power play defenseman on Carolina, and he took so many shots on goal. But last year, only 37 points in 75 games. Still 225 shots, which is really great. And he only missed seven games, which is actually an improvement. He used to miss a lot more time in previous years. Do you see Falk as a bounce-back candidate at this time? Are you still as high on him as we used to be as like a 40-point at least defenseman who's going to give you a ton of shots? Is he actually still the top power play defenseman on Carolina for sure? Is there some competition? So give me your general thoughts on Falk. I think he is still the top power play defenseman in Carolina, at least for the short term. It did seem that he was getting pushed for the job by Noah Hennepin at times last year. And truthfully, he deserved to be pushed for it. He took a real tumble in his power play shot attempt and shots on goal rates to the point that they rank in his personal bottom half over the course of his six-year career. One reason for this difficulty on the power play getting shots off might have been Carolina's transition to a four forward one defenseman setup where he worked the point further away from his offside than he had in the past two years when they were working a three forward two defenseman setup. He had normally set up his right handed shot from the left side and so he was getting fed and it worked very well for him. But his shot locations last year drifted towards the middle and bled over to the right side last season. And again, he's a righty. So on the power play, ideally, he's one timing it on the left side of the ice. So we'll see what the Carolina power play looks like this year. They did finish 21st in the NHL in power play efficiency. So maybe they're like, huh, maybe something's wrong. Maybe we could tweak it and improve it. I would love to see Falk move decidedly back to his offside with the man advantage as part of that. But, of course, we're going to have to wait and see what improvements the Hurricanes actually try to make, if any, to their power play. If he stays situated in the same spot on the ice during the power play that he was last year, then you can probably knock a few points off of his usual 45-point upside, figuring him more likely to be a 40-plus point guy instead with a little less upside in the shooting department. Huh, look at this. Only in Keeping Carlson are you going to get so much insight into fantasy projections. Where did, where did you find all of this about where he's standing on the ice? Well, first I noticed that his shot rates on the power play went down, and I used Hockey Reference to figure that out. And then I went over to HockeyViz.com, and uh, because we support them on Patreon, we can log in and see the shot charts for Justin Falk, and I compared his shot locations on the power play over the last three years. And it's actually really fun. You can see the drift from the left side towards the center and even tending a little more towards the right last year. Damn. Impressive. 
Brian, don't don't ever leave me. I need you here. <laughs> okay. Let's do one more defenseman before we get to some forwards. Ghost Bear is the 42nd D. Why is Mark Edward Vlasic, Matt Niskanen, and Sammy Vatnin ahead of him? Vatnin's injured, by the way. I'm starting to regret this episode. <laughs> as I, I, this, is, this is me writing as I was going through prepping this show. And when I got to Ghost Bear at 42nd, I was like, oh my gosh, it's never been like this. I don't know. Again, like, please, Yahoo, I'd love to hear how you came up with these rankings. I mean, sure. Provorov is potential competition for Ghost Bear as the top power play defenseman on Philly, but probably not even still. Give me Ghost Bear over Vlasic and Niskanen and Vatnin, right? I mean, okay. Do you even have anything to say about that or should I get some forwards? No, I totally agree with you. Ghost Bear is still, everything I've read seems to still be operating under the assumption that he'll start the year as the team's power play quarterback and is not about to have that job stolen from him by Provorov. So operate with that assumption, go with it, keep an eye on him through camp, but I'm not scared off from drafting him at all. Even if they said the spot was up for grabs, I'd still want him ahead of the the assortment of guys that you just named. Okay, so next, I'm loving Evgeny Dadanov at 207 and Vadim Shipachov at 228 overall. These guys could be huge steals. If you don't know these guys, they're new players coming to the league this year. Actually, Dadanov was in the NHL a long time ago. But anyways, they both were elite guys in the KHL last year on the same team on Ska St. Petersburg. Dadanov had 66 points in 53 games and Shipashov had 76 points in 50 games. Dadanov is going to Florida where the reports have been that he's going to be on the top line with Barkov and Hubert Doe, just a really great spot to be in. And Shipashov going to Vegas, so it's a little harder to project what he'll be able to do there because we don't know how good the players around him will be. But a lot of people are thinking that Shipachov is going to be the point leader on the Golden Knights. So for what that's worth, that could be like 50 points. I'd see Dadanov as maybe even 55 sleeper for 60. Who knows? Definitely if you could get them as your last pick in the draft, as you would be in a lot of leagues, if you got them down at past the 200s, I think it's a great steal. Brian, do you have a favorite of these two Russians? So I do. It's, it's not counter. It's a little counterintuitive though. Shipachov is the guy that I think I'm going to want to go with. I think if any one on Vegas is going to crack 50 points this year and hopefully threaten 55 or more. It's going to be Shipachov. He seems to be the most talented guy on the roster. And then you have Dadanov, who seems to be in a really plum spot. Elon, you mentioned he had been in the NHL before, which is something that we often forget. For anyone who's wondering, he had 20 points, 10 goals, 10 assists in 55 games played with Florida and Carolina in his first go-round. He's in a really plum spot this year with Florida, so that's great for him. Some people reference his KHL stats and saying, yeah, it's 66 points in 53 games last season, but I've also seen that he had a high shooting percentage last year, so some of those points are going to disappear. He's also 28 years old, so not to say like he's going to decline instantly, but he's not on an upwards trajectory, so to speak. Between the two, again, like it's hard with these guys because I haven't seen any of them play outside of like the odd YouTube highlight. And because of that, I'm relying heavily on what I'm picking up from other people's projections and analysis and commentary. I like Shibachov from everything I've synthesized from that information. He's the guy that I would go with ahead of Dadanov. And not to set anyone's expectations too high, Elon, but you mentioned Artemi Panarin way back when as a guy that you could just go for with your last pick of the draft. And then, of course, off he went. I don't know if either of these guys has that same potential. I mean, we didn't think that about Panarin either. So you never know. Definitely worth a flyer. If they're falling this late in your draft or you could get them as your last pick, like what do you have to lose? And who knows? Like Radulov also last year came in from the KHL and did pretty well, not as well as Panarin. 
who knows who's better than who until we actually see these guys play, like you said. But I really like the chances, especially like not in the cupful because we've talked about these guys quite a lot on our Facebook group. But if you're in a league with your friends on Yahoo, throw these guys on your watch list at the start of the draft and try to grab them at the end. Don't forget about them because they're way down the list. Okay, next, Brian, down at 225th. Overall, a lot of buzz lately about Ryan Strome potentially starting this year with McDavid on the top line in Edmonton. And that would definitely make him a guy that I'd want to take a flyer on late in my draft. Brian, if I recall correctly, you used to be pretty into Ryan Strome when he came into the league. There was a lot of hype surrounding him on the Islanders, and obviously that fizzled as he wasn't able to really get anything going there. He never really got to play with Tavares except for on the top power play, which, by the way, a lot of people forget he was on the top power play last year. I guess he just couldn't do much with it. But obviously it's a whole other thing being with Connor McDavid. We all saw what Pat Maroon was able to do with McDavid last year. So what do you think about Ryan Strom? Do you agree with me that he's worth a flyer late in the draft just because of this potential of him getting on that top line? I agree with you that he's worth a flyer. I disagree with my earlier self, who was really excited back when he was coming into the league. And I even remember the season he got sent down to the AHL. I like grabbed him like, I was going to have to come up soon. This is going to be so good. It's like a free mid-round pick for my fantasy team. And like that decision almost sunk my whole season because I held him while he was in the AHL, expecting a call up. It didn't happen as soon as I thought it would. And once it did, he didn't do anything. And with him... Like, I don't know why he didn't do anything. It's been hard over his career to tease apart just how many opportunities he's actually been offered versus the apparent ones he's blown. His career high is 50 points, and that actually came in a year where his on-ice shooting percentage was like 2.5% higher than what it should have been. And for anyone wondering, that's a big jump. That's a big jump. It doesn't sound big, but it's big. Uh, He was no favorite of Jack Capuano on Long Island, and it especially showed early last season when his average ice time per game dropped by like 70 seconds. It's worth noting, though, even after Capuano was fired, like this wasn't necessarily just between the two of them. Doug Waite came in, he took the helm, and Strom saw a slight uptick. He saw another 30 seconds of ice on average than he'd been seeing in the first half of the season, but that's still 40 seconds off than what he'd been offered in his average ice time the year before. And in the ice time he got, he wasn't really making much of a case to get any more than what he was being given. His shot on goal rates have now dropped for three consecutive years, and his shot attempt rates aren't in much better shape. So all that said, I think it's pretty safe to say that he's going to be offered a brand new opportunity in Edmonton to begin with, and that's going to let us get a good look and see what he can do with a little more trust in ice time and deployment and quality of teammates during that ice. You know, of course, McDavid can heal all production woes if they play together. It's like not even worth talking about. It's like, yeah, pick up Ryan Strom. But I'm really curious to see if he plays away from McDavid or even if he's with him, if Strom is a guy who's never had the right opportunity or he's a guy who just isn't going to be able to take advantage of an opportunity when it's presented to him. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. And like Cam is saying here in the chat room, Shirelli confirmed Strom will be on McDavid's line for training camp. We'll see if that lasts through to the start of the regular season. I can't wait, Brian, until we could actually do episodes of Keeping Carlson talking about things that are happening. Like we'll be able to do an episode close to the end of September where we'll talk about what's happening in training camp and what we can learn from it, which even still is like a bit annoying. It's kind of like during the playoffs where it's kind of like hard to tease out what's relevant and what's like complete noise that we have to not let us get distracted by. But it'll be something. But yeah, it'll be really fun to see throughout training camp where Ryan Strom is playing and if he could stick with McDavid all the way to the start of the season. Okay, we keep going down the list. I get to the 47th center, 237th overall, Brian Little. 
I think that that is kind of a steal. Sure, he's kind of injury prone. He only played 59 games last year, but he had 47 points in those 59 games. 42 and 57 the year before, 52 and 70 the year before that. So he hasn't played a full season in a while, but we're talking like 60 to 65 point paces when he is healthy. And he's likely going to be centering at least one of Wheeler or Line. So I feel like if you're in a head-to-head league with an IR, just like we talked about earlier with guys like Carlson and Malkin, I feel like there's no reason to leave Brian Little undrafted in your league draft him he's going to be pretty good for you i feel like at least 60 point pace like we've been seeing from him all this time and then if he gets injured sure you throw him away you put him in your ir you drop him whatever you have to do but this is a really good guy that shouldn't be so far down the list i mean nick bonino was ahead of him yeah so maybe nick what yeah so maybe not that far down but i also elon i'm not about to go with 60 points from him he's always been easily slept on this year it's a little easier to sleep on him because, well, he's definitely moved to second line center. Again, that's not new because of Shifley being at 1C. But he's also someone entering his age 30 season, which means, like, again, like not fall off a cliff decline, but he's not getting any younger. Uh, he's going to get to play with either Wheeler, Ehlers, or maybe even Liney, at least one of them through most of the year. So that's a pretty nice setup for him and a reason to think, well, he'll get above 50 could hope for 55. I think 60 would be his absolute max. I wouldn't draft him as like someone I'm counting on to get to 60, but as a solid 50, 55 point center later on in your draft, he offers really good value as he always has like him and Blake Wheeler and Andrew Ladd, you know, like the whole time we've been doing the podcast, those jets were always overlooked and they still are like Blake Wheeler still getting disrespected. in a lot of people's draft rankings when really he's a 70 point winger, that's valuable. Yeah, and if your league counts hits, Wheeler helps you there as well. But we're talking about Brian Little here. I definitely wouldn't leave him undrafted. I'd be happy to have him on my team just because he's going to have one of these really great right wingers with him, even though it's online too. Okay, next we get to Rick Nash over 241, probably the lowest we've ever seen him on a draft list. Have we lost faith in him? He kind of disappeared last year. He got injured for a while. He's getting older. He used to be an all-star, a guy that would be drafted in the top 50. Do you think he should be like 241? Would you draft him in a league or do you think at this point you shouldn't draft him and maybe have him on your watch list for if something could happen? Yeah, don't draft him. I don't think you need to. Let someone else do that. And this is a this is a big if. It's such a big if. I have like four asterisks on either side of my show notes and a capital IF. That's how giant an if it is. If Rick Nash is healthy this season, his upside, which means like the highest amount of points that you could hope him to get if everything breaks well for him, I'd put it at 55 points. He's clearly in decline and like he's going to miss 20 games anyway, right? So that would leave him with maybe he'll get you 35, 40 points. And even if he plays 82 games, which is not going to happen, but if he did, I wouldn't like want to bet on the over 45 points. So yeah, you can leave him behind. Let someone else think that he's still got some gas in the tank. He's like your Marion Hosa this year. Wait, what? (laughs) You mean he's not going to play? No, I mean like what Marion Hosa was last year as like a veteran who had had some like really great glory days and is very talented, but just older and kind of broken and who knows how much they have left to give and like, who's he going to play with? Is he going to have the right kind of support on the ice? Uh, You can draft him for some like veteran presence on your team if you like it. But again, he's not going to give you any of that bonus upside that you might be able to get from another half point per game player who might have upside to hit 50 or 55 points and play 82 games. Yeah, man, what a drop for Rick Nash. Just 
So three seasons ago in 2014-15, he had 69 points in 79 games and 304 shots. And he's still decent for shots. Like last year, he had 38 points in 67 games, like a 46-point pace. So huge drop in points, almost 200 shots in like 67 games. So he is good for shots when he is playing. If your league counts that, he might be a good guy to pick up every once in a while as a free agent. Or, you know, I, I wouldn't get mad at you for picking him as your last pick in your draft and then riding him and see what happens, then be ready to drop him. If nothing happens after the first couple of weeks, just because he can be good for shots and who knows, but I agree with you, Brian, like his glory days are well behind him. Okay. Next I see Elias Lindholm and Andre Burakovsky. They look like really nice late winger sleepers at 253 and 262 overall. Do you have someone you like better between the two of them? Both guys who we've expected upside from before and been disappointed, but it seems like this year might be the year where the pieces will come into place. People are excited about Carolina in general and Sebastian Ajo. There's a lot of hype around him and Lindholm might be playing with him. And then Burakovsky, now we have that open spot in the top six in Washington because Marcus Johansson's gone, Justin Williams is gone. We expect Burakovsky to be there. Do you have a favorite between these two and anything you want to say about him? Well, actually, I tried to segue into these two very smoothly for you, but I'm glad you you did reference Rick Nash's past when I said that you might prefer a half-point-per-game guy with upside of 50 or 55 points instead of him. Both these guys fit the bill. Burakovsky's the one of the two who's got a new role with less known upside. You know, I feel like we've been talking about him for years already, but he's only entering his age 22 season. Uh, I've seen big swings in his projections for this year from like 40 or 45 points to upwards of 55 points. But that's what you're getting with him. You're going to get a half point per game with upside for more. Don't count it as a given that he's going to step onto the top power play like Marcus Johansson was back when he was still with the Capitals, but expect him to at least get top six deployment and a sniff of power play one occasionally and at least power play two time the rest of the way. Elias Lindholm has been a dependable half point per game guy and getting power play for a while too. And he's also younger than you'd think. He's just entering his age 23 season. He's long been rumored to have 55 point upside, but he's had the opportunity and not followed through in the last couple of years. So this is where you wonder, is this where he's stuck or is this about maturing and getting better with age figuring out his game as he gets older. This is the time where he would show that if it's the case. So I think the difference between them is Lindholm seems a little more likely to hang out in the 45-point range, while Burakovsky is likely to get there and has, in my mind, a better chance of cracking 50. Cool. Yeah, definitely. These are the types of guys you'd be happy to get late in your draft in a lot of leagues. Definitely better than the 253rd and 262nd best player in the league fantasy-wise. Okay, Brian, next, what are your thoughts on Thomas Vanek being signed by the Vancouver Canucks? I've been reading that he should likely get into the top six and maybe get some power play time with the Sedins. Vanek had an interview where he was saying he thinks that he can help their power play. I don't know what that's worth when a player projects his own deployment on the team there is would you take a late round flyer on him at 271 like compared to these guys we've talked about recently like nash lindholm burakovsky is vanek around the same as these guys for you a little bit lower a little bit higher he had a really strong start to the year last year with detroit but then fizzled out completely after coming back from injury and then getting traded to florida and i guess related to him you have henrik sedin at 299 man this is another like a rick nash you know like 
formerly so valuable in fantasy, now far, far down. He only had a sad 50-point season last year with no peripherals and no shots. So, I mean, there's a good reason why Sedin was so far low. Daniel Sedin actually only had 44 points, so both of them really sucked. I assume our projection of Vanek is going to be related to our projection of the Sedins if they're going to play together. So what do you think about all these sad old Canucks players who we'd love to just see? Well, give me one more good year. It'd be so nice for them to go out on top. Do you have any info that they're going to play together? That sounds like a really weird line to me. Maybe just on the top power play. I don't have any info. I was just spitballing. Okay, yeah. Because I feel like that'd be a pretty slow line without any... I mean, they're all good players. Vanek isn't exactly known for his skating at this point in his career. I'm not sure what he can do. He's kind of like the power play specialist. And at even strength, I think he's just getting by. It's weird that Vancouver signed him. Like, I don't know what exactly they're trying to do this season. Are they trying to win a few more games that will decrease their lottery odds further? Do they think that this puts them into playoff contention? It it boggles the mind exactly what they're doing with getting a few decent bargain bin signings, Vonick being one of them, Sam Gagne being another, but without being within a few bargain bin signings of qualifying for the playoffs or contending for the Stanley Cup and being so far from those objectives, or so it seems to us people on the outside. As for the Sedins, I like Daniel a little more for a rebound. I guess I always have, except he's a finisher and that finishing might be starting to disappear. Both the Sedins are definitely in their twilight. Uh, you look at their line mates for the last couple of years, though. Uh, they were Louis Erickson, Marcus Granlin, Brandon Sutter, a little bit of Yannick Hansen. None of them, no one on Vancouver could do much at all last year. There were problems on the power play. That led to both Sedins having their worst special teams production since before the 2004 lockout. And there's also the problem with Henrik that he contributes nowhere but assists, well, and power play points, except he barely did that last year. And he's at the least valuable position. Like there's the value of a replacement for centers is pretty small from one center to the next. And lots of leagues, because of his tough season last year, finished with Henrik as a free agent at the end of the year. I could see that happening out of some shallower drafts this year, but I think or I'm hoping that a new coach uh, and Travis Green can come and help them keep a 50-point pace and perhaps get a few more power play points this season. One more year of fantasy relevance for the Sedins. I feel like I'm just going to keep saying that. I don't think they're free agent fodder quite yet, though. But just be careful, like Rick Nash, if you're still being persuaded by their name value. They are not who they used to be. You're hoping for 50 points from both of them. Well, yeah, I think that Henrik probably is free agent fodder just for like the reason you said. Brian, he's a center and he doesn't help you in many peripherals or shots. Daniel, left wings are a lot harder to find and he takes decent shots. So I'd be happy to have him as one of my last left wingers on my team and then hope for some upside. And yeah, you're right that it would be kind of weird for them to be playing with Vanek. Maybe like a Brock Besser or someone could inject some life into their line and maybe get things going. Okay, next I got Radko Gudas down at 295. If your league counts hits and blocks, you want Radko Gudas on your team. Brian, last year, no one drafted him in our joint league, which is a points league that gives like a bunch of points for blocks and then decent number of points for hits. And we picked him up and he was like one of our most solid defensemen on our team. Like just so many reliable points every single game. Like I think most defensemen were averaging around like 2.5 fantasy points per game and Gudas was always good for around three. So if your league counts those categories, don't sleep on Radko Gudas. He's so reliable to help you in those bangers and mash cats just don't let him don't let someone else get him and then regret it when you play him and you get demolished in those peripherals yeah he's huge that way don't look past him another guy that a lot of people look to elon in that vein is mark borowiecki 
because he throws a crazy amount of hits and he really went off the rails last year. What's going to be interesting is if that continues this year. A lot of people just say, yeah, he hits a lot, like say like Matt Martin, and he's just going to keep hitting. That's his game, except it definitely cost him last year. He couldn't get back into the lineup. He might have been healthy enough after he got injured in the playoffs, and then towards the end, he still wasn't getting back in. Unclear if he was able to play or not. I think that even if he was able, he shouldn't have been in the lineup. And as I said, sometimes he is so aggressive in trying to throw a hit that the play just passes him right by. There was another good article on The Athletic by Tyler Dello who called Borowiecki the Wayne Gretzky of hitting. I mentioned that a crazy amount of his hits actually take place in the neutral and attacking zone. So he's really stepping up out of the defensive zone, aggressively seeking out hits to be made. But of course, the danger of that is once the puck gets behind you, you are so far out of position. There's no hope of getting back if your hit doesn't stop the play. So Mark Borowiecki, not a very good defenseman. We'll see if he has to alter his game to stay in the lineup on a regular basis. And that might include taking down his hits. Radko Gudis, circling back to him, a very good defenseman, both in fantasy and like anyone looking at him, like just like he's a heavy-handed goon. Uh, he's not. He's become one of the better shutdown defenders in the league. Not fantasy relevant, but just a, a good for him. Well, it's fantasy relevant in that he's going to keep getting decent amount of ice time, so he'll be able to keep throwing those hits and blocking those shots. So there you go. And I guess since we're talking about defensemen who give you some hits, maybe if you're nervous about Borowiecki losing his ice time and then not being able to hit as much, maybe also look at Michael Del Zotto, who also went to Vancouver. So maybe I should have brought him up back in our Canucks talk. But if you didn't get Gudas, Del Zotto hits a lot. And I think he might have a decent role on the Canucks. Like they're not exactly deep on defense. I wouldn't be surprised if MDZ ends up getting a decent amount of power play time while giving you those hits and blocks. Okay, next, we're going down list. Now I'm way into the 300s. We can start going a bit into the lightning round here, Brian, as we get to guys who I think just don't belong in 300s. Basically, everyone I mentioned from now on are guys I think should or could be drafted in your league and wouldn't be drafted if people just went by the default rankings because very few leagues go past 300 players drafted. I see Brendan Gallagher as someone very appealing at 305, surrounded by guys like Christopher Stieg, Nick Schmaltz, Joel Ward, and Sam Bennett. Does Brendan Gallagher still have that 60-point, 200-plus shot upside we used to peg him for? Yeah, Gallagher has higher upside than most of the guys you just mentioned. Over the last couple seasons, though, we've learned a couple important things about him and his ability to reach that upside. One of them being uh, that injuries might be an issue. He's missed 47 games over the last two years. And then the second thing is that he seems to be pretty reliant on deployment for points. I mean, you can't blame him for that, but he gets his shots on goal regardless. He maintained career average shot and shot attempt rates despite losing a shocking 90 seconds of ice per game last year on average, and he played with lesser line mates by the end of the season, like Paul Byron and Thomas Plekanitz. Now, he might still have the shots on goal, but his days of racking up points with Pacioretty, Galchenyuk, and a younger version of Thomas Plekanitz seem to be behind him, which spells the end of the days where you can hope for 60 points from him. Be happy in the meantime when he's playing in like a middle six role if he helps you in shots on goal while popping a half point per game. 
Okay, that's fair. But I think there's upside there. Like, I still think they're going to need to find someone to play with the newly acquired Druin and, and Pacioretty and Galchenyuk, like you said. And I could see Gallagher getting there. Definitely not a sure thing, but definitely someone to watch. And I'd be happy to have him on my drafted team, maybe a little later than I would have taken him last year. But, you know, definitely better than 305. Okay, next, Yahoo has a really strange run around the 320 to 380 range where they just put all of the young prospects who people are expecting to be Calder candidates or, you know, maybe some players who are going to be in their second year in the league so i'll just like rhyme off a bunch of players to you brian who i feel like some of them might end up being deservedly in that 300 range as they won't make an impact in the league but a couple of these guys are going to be good one of them is probably going to win the calder so anyways, let me throw out some names to you oliver bjorkstrand at 320 i still believe in him even though we were wrong about him last year i know i'm a bigger fan of him than you are then like we've got clayton keller brock besser honka kyle connor jost pulak matthew barzil jacob verana joel erickson eck all between 347 and 384 so what i said before you know applies like i think a couple of these guys are going to be really good you know there's a lot of hype around the clayton kellers and brock bessers and maybe a couple of these other guys we'll see which ones break out are any of these especially tempting to you do you have any thoughts in general about taking rookies like this in a one-year league? Like, what's your strategy in terms of how many of these rookies you're willing to take? Or how long do you wait? Do you let other people rush to take the exciting new players? How long do you hold on to these players when you draft them if they're not producing like you expected? Like, I remember I dropped Johnny Goudreau after his slow start a couple of years ago in his rookie season and then really regretted it as he ended up putting up an amazing rookie year, just had a bad, like, first two weeks. So obviously I thought I'm going to learn my lesson and not drop these really high pedigree guys so quickly once I draft them but at the same time how long can you hold on to someone if they're not making an impact on their team in their first season impossible to know I mean what you want to look at is you want to look at their shot rates make sure they're involved in the offense see that their ice time is going up or staying steady rather than declining seeing that they're getting you know ideally time on one of the power play units if not the top one that's what you're looking for to hope a player breaks out I mean you can be as patient as their team is, in giving them opportunities to put up points. It's up to you when to cut bait, depending on what else is going on. I don't like to pile too many of these guys on my team because, I mean, it's a rare shot that one of them is really going to bust out for a huge difference-making season. Of course, it's a longer shot that two or three are going to do it. So my advice is usually, if you want them Pick one of them. Assume that they're going to get 40 points. Don't draft them too far ahead of that. But if you can get them around 40-point guys who have like 40-point upside, then maybe at that point they're worth it to you because they're 40-point guys and you think in your heart that they have 50-plus upside. Of the list you mentioned, Elon Clayton Keller is, of course, the one that everyone is the most excited to see this season. My eyes will be on Brock Besser and Matthew Barzel. Matthew Barzel, of course, has the benefit of an NHL training camp under his belt and two games of experience at the start of the season. He's also 20 years old, so a bit older than some of the other guys you mentioned. Brock Besser, also 20 years old, with some experience at the end of last season, and actually looks really good. Like one of the Canucks' best forwards during his time there. That doesn't always get you very far in Vancouver, but it's something. And then the the dark horse here that I'll go with that many people are either not talking about or talking about in big ways is Kyle Connor. We've heard a couple people being excited about him and otherwise seems to be getting disregarded. So that's someone I'll be watching, not drafting, but watching to see where he ends up in the Jets lineup. 
Okay, and then three more young prospects that are even farther outside of the 300s. We have Timo Meyer at 451. He's really tempting to me. He's another guy who I could see as like the next Arvidsson. I think I mentioned that on the show already, like 85 shots in 34 games last year on San Jose. So he showed that he could take the shots. He just clearly didn't get the bounces, didn't get enough out of his 85 shots. Only three goals. I expect normally he's going to get more than three goals every time he takes 85 shots moving forward. And there's an open spot with the Joes on line one, potentially an open spot on the top power play with Marlo gone. So I like him. Konechny at 524. Yeah, Travis Konechny was kind of disappointing last year, only 28 points in 70 games. But you know, just like Meyer, there's some open spots in Philly, both in terms of the top six and the top power play. So he's a guy I would consider, especially this late. And then Jesse Pugliarvi at 622. Just, you know, the McDavid effect. And, you know, he's a very highly touted prospect. I don't know if this is his year that he makes the team and also gets into the top six. But yeah, these three guys, Meyer, Konechny, and Pugliarvi, obviously aren't going to get drafted by people using the default draft rankings. And guys, I would at least have on my watch list if I don't draft them. Yeah, of that group, I think the only guy I'd really be considering drafting is Pugliarvi, just because the upside has to be so big if he ends up playing with McDavid. Timo Meyer is definitely an interesting one because of the shot rates he put up during his brief time in the NHL last year. It's just been a while since anyone could make a real impact in that spot, and I don't know if that's a function of the way the Sharks operate or a function of just not having the right guy to put in that spot, and Meyer is the right guy. He might be someone I take a late round flyer on. And then Travis Konechny, we liked him going into last year. We were really excited by his early goal scoring run. Then he got injured and never came back. I wouldn't be counting on him to improve significantly upon last season. I'd hope for a half point per game pace from him. Okay, and speaking of Meyer, you know, another guy that could take that spot on line one is Tomas Hurdle, who's over at 777, which seems... Uh, you know, a little low. Uh, we're just a couple seasons removed from a 46-point season on line one with the Joes, though that was the year that Joe Thornton put up 82 points in 82 games. I don't think we're expecting that to happen again. So even if you're on that line, I wouldn't expect maybe that much upside, but 46 points isn't that high. So Hurdle or Meyer, maybe if you don't draft these guys, definitely have them on your watch list to start the year and see who's getting, especially that primo top power play spot with Thornton, Pavelski, Couture, and Brent Burns. I'd want to have that guy on my team at least to start the year and see how he does. Okay, going to the other side of the age curve, we have Drew Stafford, who I know you're going to say to just disregard. I want to mention he signed with the Devils. He's way down at 776. Is there any chance he can break into the top six and do something? Or do you think he's just like a nobody, not fantasy relevant at all? And I guess on the Devils, I'll just ask you a couple at a time. Damon Severson is way down at 797. We went through this all last year trying to figure out who's going to be the top power play defenseman. We were excited about Severson then just because Taylor Hall had been acquired. But then we saw that even as the top power play defenseman as Severson was for most of the year, he wasn't able to put up too, too many points. But still, probably worth drafting if your league forces you to hold like five or six defensemen. That's a lot of defensemen to be drafted. And there's some offensive upside there for Severson. Though, keep in mind, he's not actually signed yet. He's still a restricted free agent. But I just read on Roto World that they're working on that as we speak. And they're going to try to work that out before training camp. I think you've got it right, Elon, as your fourth defenseman. Maybe he's not someone you want to reach for, but he's definitely better than some of the 791 people ranked ahead of him. Yeah, okay. Brian, is there anything left for Clark MacArthur down at 796? You used to love Clark MacArthur. You would talk about him as such a great value pick in fantasy leagues over on the Sens. Could he still get in the top six playing with Broussard or Tourist? Is he healthy? I actually haven't heard much about him since the playoffs, but it was really cool how he came back and did somewhat okay after, you know, all those concussion issues. What's the word on Clark MacArthur for next year? The word is uh, quiet. No one's really been talking about him this offseason, which I guess means that he still plans to play another year. If you don't know, or even if you do find out by the time you draft, I don't think he's a draft 
where the guy I did love him in that one year where MacArthur, Ryan, and Tiris were one of the league's most dangerous lines. That was very exciting. Clark MacArthur is a player who's underrated for a large part of his career and did provide a lot of under-the-radar fantasy value. However, those days are over, and you can probably count on 40 points in a best-case scenario, and that's assuming he stays healthy. I would prefer he just retired and enjoy his health as it is. Yeah, definitely. But... You know, we are a fantasy podcast, and if he gets in the top six, he could do something, at least in short spurts. The last news I see from him is back in May, after the playoffs were over, and the general manager, Pierre Duaron, didn't seem overly concerned about his ailment long-term, and he expected him to be back ready for the next season. So maybe he will play. Okay. Anyways, I just got a couple more guys for you, Brian. I kind of laughed as I was going through the list. I saw Troy Brower at 855. How much is Calgary playing for Troy Brower, the 855th ranked player, according to Yahoo? Obviously, this is slightly making fun of Yahoo and slightly making fun of the Calgary Flames. If your league counts hits, there's some value in Troy Brower. He was getting a lot of top line and sometimes even top power play time last year, but he, he didn't really do too much with it. Troy Brower will be paid $4.5 million for the next three years to be someone who has no business being in a top six role. If the Flames are lucky, he'll still be useful in a middle six role, but I don't see anything better or any relevant production coming from him. I know that's like ridiculously low and there's some no names above him in the rankings, but he's low enough that you won't make the mistake of accidentally drafting him. Yeah, he's just, if you're in a hits league, keep him on your watch list. If there's like a good schedule one week and you need hits for like, let's say if, you know, Calgary plays two days in a row and you could grab him for those two games and then drop him for someone else. If you're streaming, he's a guy to grab because he gets you those hits, but yeah, nothing much else. Okay, on the other side of the peripherals, the blocks, Chris Russell at 860 is the guy who led the league in blocks last year. If your league counts blocks, Grab Chris Russell, right? He could help you win a category almost single-handedly taking a defenseman spot. If it's your last defenseman spot on your team and you're deciding between Damon Severson and Chris Russell, you kind of have to decide if you want to take the risk that maybe Severson can have some offensive upside or take the sure thing in Chris Russell's blocks. I'd probably just go for the blocks. Yeah, Chris Russell is more likely to move the needle with his blocks than Damon Severson will have the opportunity to do with his 25 or 30 points that will be stretched over 82 games. Okay, and Brian, closing out the list, down at 881, the last guy I saw that I think could be fantasy relevant this year, Arturi Lekkonen. So I guess I could have mentioned him back when we talked about Gallagher on the Habs. I think he's the best guy in the 700-plus range where no one will ever look. He ended last year strong with 12 points in the last 18 games. His shot rates also increased as the end of the year approached. So if you look at his overall season numbers, they're not that great. But near the end of the year when he was getting a more impactful role in the top six it seems like he was producing he's only 22 years old I feel like he's a decent bet to be in the Habs top six again I could see him being a sleeper for 50 points maybe I don't know if he's playing with like Druin or Galchenyuk on the other wing do you think that's too high like I'm not saying you have to draft him but definitely someone to watch and definitely someone who jumps out at me among all the nobodies down at 881 I guess you could if you're the sort of person who likes taking that big swing at the end of their draft if you're asking me between him and some of the other guys you've mentioned, like Konechny and Stafford and MacArthur and Brower, Lekkonen would probably be the one that I'm most interested in taking a chance on because he's the one who seems to have, heading into camp, the most reasonable chance of ending up with a good deployment scenario. Of course, we'll have to see how that actually plays out. And we'll, of course, be caught up in all of the highs and lows of training camp line combos and intra-squad scrimmages that'll be tweeted out very annoyingly. But mercifully, it means that hockey season is inching closer and closer to being here. I will put up with that if it means that meaningful games are coming 
within a month, under a month now. So exciting. And Brian, we're done our journey through the Yahoo rankings again. If you wanted to take a look at those rankings, keepincarlson.com slash Yahoo, I posted it there. But yeah, that was a bit of a journey through a really weird list. But here we are. Hopefully you guys listening got some value from this. Even if you aren't drafting in Yahoo, you got Brian's really interesting takes on Justin Falk and his shot locations and many more. So thanks so much for listening to the show. We've got another live show planned for next Sunday at 7 p.m. I'm thinking for this one, I'm going to get a bunch of different projections and compare them to each other. And then we'll talk about which players have really varying projections between the projectors. So we'll discuss, you know, the guys who like one projector has for 70 points and the other projector has for 50 points. Then we'll discuss which way we think we lean. So that is a fun show. We did it last year and it was really good. But between now and then... I'll mention one more time, if you want to help support the show, you could take a look at our patron program. We have lots of perks that we're offering to people who want to help support the show at a $5 per month level. So you can check out all the information at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. And the main perk that you would have to rush for to get is if you want to get into the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, which is going to be a super competitive, awesome league with five full tiers, 15 divisions. You could jump in still at tier five and start your journey to climb up to tier one. There's like 10 to 12 spots left right now for next year. So if you want to join that, just sign up to be a patron to lock in your spot. Keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Brian, want to say anything before I uh, start playing that outro music? Well, just out of all you're talking about patron perks, a cool one if you didn't know, our show notes are up for grabs for patrons at a certain level. And we've also ordered stickers for patrons at that level too. It's the one that also gets you Facebook access. If you don't have it already, it's the $10 a month level. You can go check it out at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. But of course, whether you do or don't, we appreciate your listening and your iTunes five-star review all the same. Brian's really excited about these stickers. And I have to say, at first I was like, who cares about stickers? But now I kind of want one of these stickers to put on my laptop. But okay, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Last time I'll mention it, let's cue that outro music. And Brian, why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, The Dauber Guide, Dom Lucician's Guide, Scott Collins, Statistically Speaking, and Top 300 Projected Scores, The Athletic, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, and Fantrax. Great job, as always, Brian. And we'll be back at all of you with another episode next week, recorded live. KeepingCarlson.com slash live if you want to join us 7 p.m. on Sundays. Eastern time. Until then, keep on keeping Carlson. 